He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott said that. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Thank you. I don't know if you've ever heard that quote before. I think I had it right. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott said that. Am I repeating myself? <laughs> Who's Jim Elliott, you say? Um, listen to part of his story with me, would you? Jim Elliott, along with four other men, and some of them had wives at the time, and uh, some of their families participated in uh, moving to uh, South America, Central America, South America area, um, south of us anyway, to minister to a tribe of people who had never heard the gospel before. And they began to make contact with these people. They began to share with them. They began to love them and try to bring them gifts and build a relationship with them. Uh, one day in 1956, they flew their little plane into the river and got out because they were, they were going to try to meet with them and and, and have some kind of intera interaction with them and, and attempt to share the gospel with them. And here's what the son of one of those men said. Let me read just a paragraph of his story. They got down into the... Um, they landed, he says, and they told the others... Uh, hey, they're on the trail, since they'd already had friendly face-to-face -face contact with these people. They were very excited. And this is what happened. Three women stepped out of the jungles on the upper end of this beach by the river. Jim and Pete, that's Jim Elliott and Pete, another man with him, started walking toward them, while Dad, he's talking about his dad, Nate Saint, and Roger and Ed hung back. They didn't want to scare them. Suddenly, members of the tribe rushed out of the jungles. Gikita with Minkaye, Kimo and Dewey right behind, and Nimongo and Nampa up ahead just a bit. And they positioned themselves to separate my dad and his friends. Then Gikita struck out after my father, saying, I'm going to spear the oldest one first. My dad was the one they recognized from the plane because he was a pilot. He was their pilot. One by one, they speared my father and his friends and hacked at them. And then they did something even worse by their cultural standards. They took what was left of the bodies and derisively threw them into the river to be eaten by the fish and turtles.
That's what happened to Jim Elliot. That's what Jim Elliot was prepared for. When the people around him said, Jim, you're such a, you're such a great, dynamic speaker. You could be a pastor of a church. You could be very successful in the United States. You could go anywhere and serve anywhere you want. And Jim said, but God has called us to go there to a people who haven't heard because God's gospel is great and those people need to hear. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep and for Jim, that was his life. He couldn't keep his life. He couldn't keep himself from dying and not any of us can. It will happen to each of us one day. You cannot keep it. But to gain what he cannot lose, he could not lose Christ. He could not lose his heavenly Father. He could not lose his salvation because he had God forever. Jim had made Jesus his greatest treasure through faith in him. He didn't fear death. He didn't fear suffering. God's glory was everything to him. And it made a difference there in those people who Steve Saint mentioned by name who came out of the jungle to kill his father and Jim and the others with them. It made a difference to them and it made, and has made a difference to countless missionaries who have heard that testimony and have been stirred by God to go to places where people do not hear the gospel and to go there regardless of the cost, regardless of the suffering, regardless of the challenge ahead. We have spent a lot of time in the gospel of John in the past few months and so today we're going to look at a passage in John, John 17, in which we hear Jesus speak what I, what I want to call the real Lord's Prayer. Most of us know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, etc. And we, that's the Lord's Prayer, and that's how we have talked about it for centuries as a church. But in reality... <laughs> That was, that was Jesus' example prayer, or his model prayer for his disciples. And here, we actually have the longest prayer recorded by Jesus in all of the scriptures, in all of the gospel accounts, right here in John chapter 17. And we hear Jesus pouring out his heart to God. What does he pray for? What motivated his prayer and the things that he asked? We're going to look at that today. And we're going to see the real Lord's Prayer. We're going to see why this prayer, I think, is going to help guide us to glorify God regardless of the cost. And regardless of what ex experiences or circumstances are in our lives. So, if you would, uh, if you haven't already turned to John 17, turn there with me in your devices or your Bibles. You can certainly uh, follow uh, along on the screen. Uh, but you may want to have your, your Bible open to you as we go through it together in a few minutes. John chapter 17, I'm going to read the first five verses. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will speak to us now. And I pray that you will use whatever words I have, as feeble as they are, to penetrate our hearts with the truth of your word, with the message that you want us to hear today, to know, to be encouraged by, to be challenged by, to be corrected by, perhaps. And God, I pray that you will do your transforming work in us this morning. And pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. God is glorified in suffering. God is glorified in suffering. Look with me again at these, this first verse. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, well, what John is saying there is that Jesus has just finished this, this dialogue and this teaching with his disciples that began all the way back in chapter 13 when they gathered together for the Passover and Jesus began that Passover meal by washing his disciples' feet and giving, him, giving them an example for them to follow. And then he began to teach them about what are some of the things that he taught them about? Love for one another, uh, service, uh, betrayal, how the world's going to hate them, but the Holy Spirit's going to come, about how they can be comforted, how they will have peace, how they will have joy, and how Jesus wants their joy to be full, and how Jesus has overcome the world, even though he's going to leave them, and he's going to come back to them. This, this, was, the, this was the substance of what Jesus was, had been telling them. And then he prays, and notice the first thing that he says in his prayer. Father, the hour has come. I was reflecting on this um, passage, um, meditating on the words of, of John chapter 13. And I remembered that it starts out this way. Um, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come, for him to depart out of the world and go to the Father. The hour had come. Jesus knew that the hour had come. Prior to that, um, prior to that, even that Passover time, Jesus had been talking with his disciples and the Jews who were around him and some Gentiles who had come up to ask to see him. And Jesus, or Jesus said this to them. He said, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What was the hour? What was this hour that he's talking about? It wasn't 60 minutes. I'll give you a hint. It wasn't a 60-minute period. The, the, um, 
the word for hour um, in Greek is actually ora or hora. I think there's a little, little And we, that's where we get our word hour from. But the word meant time or a period of time or it could mean a moment or it could mean it could mean any block of time that was kind of designated out and so for Jesus he said my hour has now come prior to this in the gospel of John people would ask him for questions people would ask him to do things and he would say my hour has not yet come my hour has not yet come don't involve me in that don't get me to do that my hour has not yet come but now on the eve of his arrest and his death and his crucifixion, along with that, the hour has come. And that's what he's saying now to, G, to, to the Father. As he's praying to the Father, he admits that the hour has come. The time has come for me to suffer. The time has come for me to die. To, the time has come for me to bear the sins of the world. And what does he ask for? This is an interesting request. Glorify your son, he asked God. Well, who is he talking about? He's talking about himself, right? He's talking about himself. He is the son. He has, been re he has referred to himself as the son throughout the gospel. We've seen him talk in terms of the, the language of son and father um, throughout this John 13 through 16 that we've looked at in the past. He says, glorify your son. He's talking about himself. He asked that God would glorify him. And what he's referring to is that, that whole all-encompassing um, historical event of his arrest, of his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his appearance to the, the other disciples, his ascension into heaven, and his seating at the right hand of God. All of that is what the, the gospel writers here, John in particular, calls or refers to as the glorification of the Son, the glorification of Jesus. It's that all-encompassing period of time in which he does historically what had never been done before, came in the flesh, died for our sins, put things right, started the clock over, started turning time backwards, however you want to look at it. His death and resurrection. And look what he does in it. He knows the hour has come. He knows that his time of suffering is at hand. And he asked that God would glorify him. In other words, let this this. In, other, in another gospel, he says, this cup. <laughs> uh, he says, I'll take the cup if it is your will. But he said, in a sense saying, I submit to your plan for me. I submit to, to you, God, to do as you have called me to do, to fulfill what you have called me to fulfill. And what is his purpose in that? The next phrase is telling, and I want to spend a lot of time thinking about that. He says, that the Son may glorify you. That the Son may glorify you. The word that is very small, and it can kind of mean a lot of things. But essentially what it means in this instance is purpose. What is the purpose for, for Jesus asking to glor for himself to be glorified? 
His purpose is that in the glorification of the Son, God Himself would be glorified. That God would be glorified as Jesus suffered. As Jesus submitted to God. How about us? How should we respond when we are faced with suffering? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a daily suffering. I know some of you and some others that I know who suffer on a day-to-day -day basis with some physical ailment or maybe a mental anguish. Will you suffer for God's glory? <laughs> Will you allow that 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 experience that's happening to you to turn your attention to God and His ways. We heard that testimony just a little bit ago, right? Going through some really difficult circumstances at the beginning of school, and all of a sudden it's, I need, I need to keep my eyes focused on God. I need to keep my eyes focused on Jesus. Could we focus our eyes on Jesus in the midst of, of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of maybe tragedy, and allow God to be glorified in that? That's what Jesus, in a sense, is doing here. And it's interesting that He doesn't dwell in this, in this prayer on how much agony He's going to experience. He doesn't go on and on about it. We know he's been troubled in spirit. He said that several times, and I'm troubled in spirit. He said to them in, in John 13, verse 21, um, or at least John said it to him, after saying these things, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Nothing that he went through was easy. The betrayal, the suffering, the death, but yet we don't see him going on and on about it here. We see him saying, God, I want you to be glorified in this. I want people to see Jesus in this. Whatever I'm going through. Jesus, we see here very clearly, sought out to glorify God. And the, and the way he did that was, is telling in verse 2. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus' uh, goal or purpose in asking for him to be glorified was so that he could glorify God. And the, the phrasing, and it's not always that clear in some of our English translations, and I got to admit that the ESV, I'm, I'm wishing maybe some of the wording was a little bit different, but it does articulate exactly, it articulates his authority, and it articulates why he has that authority. Because he basically, he's kind of comparing, um, he's comparing the request to glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. He's kind of comparing that to the authority that He has over all flesh. So it's almost like His glory and His authority are together. And then the glory uh, that He will do of God is connected to the eternal life that He's going to bring and going to give to all those that God has given to Him. That's, ex that's what's happening there. 
And we see that not only is God glorified in suffering, but God is glorified in salvation. Because that's the next thing that he talks about. God is glorified in salvation. He has authority, he says, over all flesh, which should probably remind some of us, at least, if we've read our Bibles and we've heard a familiar phrase uh, or familiar passage in Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Right? Baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. He, he, he makes that statement of authority in Matthew 28, but here he is in John 17. Before he dies, before he's resurrected, before he makes that statement to the disciples, and he's saying, God has already given me authority over all flesh. That's all people, all humanity, the world. I have authority over all. Authority to do what? Authority to save. Specifically to save. That's his emphasis right here. To give eternal life to all whom you have given me. God is glorified in salvation. And what is this salvation? He says it's eternal life. So, that's pretty straightforward. Someone tries to redefine that for you and says, well, that means this or that, the other thing. Say, it means eternal, that means forever, never-ending life. Life, living, existing, okay? Not life for a long period of time or, or life for, uh, for whatever period of time on this earth and then it's over. Uh, not just a really, really good life. I mean, Jesus does talk about abundant life in this gospel, but he's... He's talking specifically about life that's going to last forever. Amen? Yes. To give eternal life, we know that just, just from the words that he's using. But then he says in verse 3, and this is eternal life. That's a key phrase. Okay? So our ears should be perking up. We should be underlined. We should be writing this down and be thinking, okay, he's going to tell us what it is. This is good stuff. This is eternal life, verse 3, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, so what is eternal life? To know God. And to know Jesus. It seems pretty straightforward, right? When do we get to experience that? As followers of Jesus, maybe his disciples were wondering this too. They asked a lot of questions in this, up, up until this point. They asked them a lot, how is this going to work out? How is that going to work out? Well, just kind of explain it to us, God. Well, give us a chart, God, or, or Jesus. Just kind of tell us how this is all going to work out. Explain to it in plain language. And even when they do say, oh, yeah, you're not using figures of speech anymore. You're talking plainly. I, don't think, I still don't think they got it. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Well, the thing about knowledge in the Bible, and when they use this word for know, it's a wide-ranging word. <laughs> it can mean a lot of things. It can mean just, well, uh, I, I knew this was going to happen. Jesus, they, the, the gospel writers talk about that. Jesus knew their thoughts. 
John says he knows what's in the heart of men. Well, that's one aspect of knowing. Understanding. Having some information. Okay? But then there's an, a, an aspect of knowing that's really very significant. Whenever we're talking about, whenever the Bible's talking about knowing God or God knowing us or knowing another person even. John knew this because he'd read the Old Testament. He knew what it meant that Adam knew his wife Eve. He knew what that meant. He, kn he knew that that meant personal, intimate connection, knowledge of one another. He knew what it meant when God said, I know you, I know my people, I've seen their struggles. John knew that that meant that God was personally acquainted with them and he was personally invested in their lives. So when John says here, well, through Jesus' words, and he records Jesus' words, that they know you, the only true God, what he's saying is, I want people <laughs> to know God in a personal way as they should know him and have and did know him in the garden. When Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, the, the story says, spent time with him, communicated with him, and, and they knew each other. That's the kind of knowledge that God wants to have of us and us of him. And not only to know the only true God, but also Jesus. And that's what Jesus is praying for. That they know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, that they realize, they come to know that not just, not just that God is out there and that God exists. That's a good starting point. Okay, It's a good starting point to say, I believe that God exists. I believe that He's out there. But how do we get to Him? What did Jesus say to Thomas? John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, Jesus is very clear here when he says that I don't, I don't want them to just, or eternal life is not that they just know God, but they, they know me. Because they can't get to God unless they come through me. They have to know me. They have to know Jesus. That's what Jim Elliot and Nate Saint and the three other men with them realized about the people living in South America on that little river and that tribe out of nowhere. They needed to know Jesus. They needed to know how to get to God. So that they wouldn't keep dying in their sins generation after generation. Jesus is the only way to God. The one way you might want to think of it is, is maybe this way. And you could probably get more information about this from Bill and ask him maybe how this works. But... There is such, so such a thing as a soul agent <laughs> where if you want to make a purchase of something, that's the person you got to go through or that's the business or that's the company. That's the exclusive, you know, whatever. Um, if you want to work, if you want to talk to Russell Wilson 
about his contract, you talk to his agent. There's only one person you can talk to. You gotta, work, gotta go through him to get to Russell Wilson and talk about whatever. That's essentially how Jesus is presented here in this gospel and how the Bible presents him. All over the New Testament, Jesus is the sole agent of how to get to God. Do you want to know him? You've got to get through him. He, in fact, is a per the perfect revelation of God in the flesh. And he told his disciples this back in chapter 14 when Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. What did Jesus say to him? You knucklehead. Well, that's my paraphrase. He said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Peter, or Philip, excuse me, he was talking to Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I and the Father are one? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on the accounts of the works themselves. He tries to make it as clear as possible that he and the Father are one. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and following, says, in the past, God has revealed himself, spoken through the prophets. But now he has spoken through his Son, the Son who's, the, who's a perfect representation of God the Father. God has spoken through His Son. He's revealed Himself through His Son to us. So we don't have to be blind any longer. Right, Chris? Like the blind men and the elephants? Amen. Chris uh, shared with our youth this Wednesday night um, the, the story that many people have told over and over about the blind men who come into a house of... There was an elephant in the room. It's kind of a weird... It's kind of a weird... There's an elephant in the room and they come into this room and they all feel a different part of the elephant. And they all say... And they, they say, well, this is what an elephant is. It's, it's got this, you know, really flat, like kind of wall-like, you know, they, one's touching the side. It's like a wall or one's touching the tail. It's like a rope. One's touching the ear. It's like a, it's like a really kind of leathery blanket. One's touching the, tongue, the trunk. And, oh, an elephant is like a, like a snake. They all got a different part of it. And we think, oh, well, that's kind of like, that's kind of like our understanding of God, right? We're all kind of blind. We're all kind of got a, you know, maybe every religion sort of has its own grasp of, of who God is. And, okay, so that sort of makes sense to me. Maybe we're all on the right track and we ought to just leave each other alone. Coexist, right? right? Give me that bumper sticker. Slap it on my car. But what if, what if the elephant could talk? Actually, what if the elephant could transform into a man? What if, not just that, but what if the man could make blind eyes see? Would that change things? <laughs> Would that make a difference in their understanding? I'm no longer blind. I can see. And I can see before me Christ. I can see who God is now. Now 
now I'm no longer searching. Now I'm no longer wondering. I'm no longer thinking, if we do enough of this, will the gods love us? Will we, if we do enough of that, will the gods accept us? Or God himself, if there's only one great. We have Jesus. The only way to God. The only way to the Father. And, G and Jesus prays that they will have eternal life. That they will know God personally. And that they will know Him through Jesus Himself. Who He has sent to represent Him. It's not enough to, to simply know God. It's not enough to say, I know He exists. It's not enough to say, Oh, I believe that Jesus was a real man. And yes, and even I believe that he, he died. And well, he probably rose again. I mean, sure, why not? Okay. But what have you done with that? Have you received the offer of salvation? Have you recognized that, that this eternal life is, is vitally connected to and is uh, to, to the authority that Jesus has over all flesh. Not just accepting that it's true, but actually basing your life on it. Because He has authority. And in fact, not basing your life on Him, submitting every area of your life to Him. I think that's one of the implications from this. As we ponder eternal life, as we ponder salvation, as we ponder how God is glorified in salvation, we ought to check ourselves and say, have I come under the authority of Jesus Christ? Is my life His? Do I know God personally? And do I have assurance of that? Not just some vague notion that, that um, I, I came to know Him at some point. But do I have assurance of that? And is my life submitted to Him who has authority over all flesh? Well, God is glorified in suffering. God is glorified in salvation. And when it comes to us and, and what we do now, today, God is glorified in our obedience. God is glorified in obedience. It's so great to hear Chris share his testimony of, I'm just, God's called me and I, I'm trying to be obedient to that call. That's so encouraging. Because that's where faith is built. That's where faith is built. He says in verse 4, Jesus is praying to the Father, I glorified you on earth. <clears throat> excuse, <clears throat> excuse me having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What does he mean by that? I obeyed. You gave me a task. I came and I did it. And what is he... Uh, he accomplished the work. Well, he accomplished a lot of works. He did a lot of things, right? He, he healed. He taught. Um, he preached and taught. Did a little bit of both. Um, or if, if there is a difference between the two. Um... He did a lot of works, but this work, singular, in particular, I believe it's this. The hour that he came for. 
<laughs> the hour that he came for. You cannot separate accomplished the work from the hour that he's speaking of, the hour that has come. What is the work that he accomplished? Well, in Jesus' economy, the work that he accomplished was his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification in the presence of God. In Jesus' way of, of viewing things, and in God's way of, of thinking about time, that work was already done. And he said, I've accomplished it. I've done what you've told me to do. Here I am on the cusp. All I've got to do now is just walk it out. <laughs> it's all ready to go. It's all laid out. And the work specifically was securing salvation for all believers through his glorification on the cross. It meant obedience for him. For Jesus, it meant I know what I am to do. I know the hour has come. And I can speak now with assurance that I can speak as if it's already been accomplished. But it's going to require me to walk it out. It's going to require me to be obedient in the face of suffering, in the face of pain, in the face of pain beyond imagination. Here the writer of Hebrews helps us out again when he says in Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience. Jesus learned something. <laughs> he learned that when you follow God, it doesn't matter what's going to happen. You experienced real obedience. He experienced obedience, and he knows what it's like. And the, the writer of Hebrews also says in another place, chapter 12, verse 2, that he suffered joyfully. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning it's shame, one translation says. What he was facing was not happy, but he faced it in obedience for God's glory. We were reading Matthew 7 um, recently, right girls? We were reading Matthew 7, and what was the, what, how does Matthew 7 end the Sermon on the Mount? What story did Jesus tell them? Tell his disciples who were listening. Do you remember that? The, the, the person who built his house on sand and all that. That's right. That's right. The wise and foolish builders. And uh, that story is a good. It's a. It's a good story. We. Uh, it's a good Sunday school story too. The wise man, I remember, a little, I remember a little song. The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? And the foolish man built his house on the sand. When the rains came, the waters rised, etc. What happened to the wise man's house? The wise man's house stood firm. And the foolish man's house laid out flat, right? It was destroyed because it didn't have a foundation. And what, is, what was Jesus' point in telling that? Not be careful where you choose to build or make sure you build a nice, sturdy, deep foundation. Um, no, he's not, he's not teaching us about um, uh, building or construction you know, processes. He's teaching us about obedience. In fact, what he said about those two people 
is the wise man is like the person who hears Jesus' words and obeys them and puts them into practice and does them. The, the, the foolish person is the one who, hey, they both hear. He hears Jesus' words too, but he doesn't put them into practice. He doesn't obey. It's not the ones who hear the word who are blessed. It's the ones who obey the word. As Jesus said in, in John 13, 7, or 17, excuse me, he told his disciples, if, or, if you do these things, you will be blessed. You know them, and it, it's great that you, he you have heard them, and it's great that you've heard my words, and you've heard my commands, and, and you now you know what I've told you, and know what I expect for you, but blessed are you. Blessed are you if you do them. God is glorified in obedience. God is glorified in obedience. He finishes this part of the prayer with this, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's not forget, I, I, I want us to be obedient. I want us to, I want us to suffer well and, and point to Christ and point to, point to his glory above all things. Uh, I, I want us to experience salvation. I, I want others to experience salvation through our own witness. But Jesus points finally to God's glory and the glory that he had before he became a man, before he walked this earth, before he suffered and died for us. Because it's that glory, I believe, that he experienced that needs to guide us as well. Steve Saint finished the story and many others have written the story and one of probably one of the most inspirational books you could probably ever read is written by Jim Elliott's wife Elizabeth who just went to be with the Lord about a, with, within this last year. And she, she wrote a, a beautiful book called Through Gates of Splendor. I would encourage you to read that story. Here's what Steve said about this experience. I didn't know the details about what had happened to his father and the rest. When I was a little boy, he was only five years old at the time, when his mother came to him and said, your father is not coming back. He went to be with the Lord and you'll never see him again. He said, I didn't know the details when I was a little boy, but I can tell you their death still crushed my heart. The incident reshaped my beliefs in a way that I didn't anticipate. Before this, I believed uh, what a lot of you probably believe when bad things happen, God merely allows them. I found out the details of my father's death after my aunt Rachel died. During all the years she had lived with the tribe, more about that in a second, the death of her brother and the others was never discussed. She didn't want them to think she would take or she would seek to avenge 
those deaths. When Aunt Rachel died, I represented the family at her burial. And that's when a lot of answers came forth. Now that Aunt Rachel was gone, the tribe felt free to talk about the events leading up to the killings and the family conflict that precipitated the attack. The death of the five martyred missionaries and the amazing change in the Waodani that came about after Aunt Rachel and Elizabeth Elliot were invited into the tribe to teach them God's carvings is now a well-known story. Countless lives have been impacted by it. Thousands of missionaries name it as the reason their hearts were moved to respond to God's call. Our family has been blessed by the love and friendship, kinship, of the Waodani people. Someone came up to me at a place where I was speaking and said, you know, if your father and his four friends had done it differently, they wouldn't have had to die. At first, I was repulsed by that suggestion, but then I realized he was right. They didn't have to go to the jungle. But then I thought, if I had to, to change, I wouldn't change a thing. I simply look at the man standing beside me. <laughs> one of my dearest friends in the whole world, and I realized that he wouldn't be here now if my dad and Roger and Pete and Ed and Jim hadn't died. We call him Grandfather Minkaye because he has become a dear member of the family. And the story is that the women went back. They didn't go back to investigate. They didn't go back to try to recover the bodies. They didn't go back to find out who was responsible. They went back to love. And because those women went back onto that beach and walked into that, into that jungle, that the people responded, what love is this? That you would come to me and share this good news after all that we've done to hurt you. And the men, one by one, who th threw the spears and hacked them up, came to know Christ. And then they became family. They became family. And Minkaye, one of the ones who, who threw the spear into S Steve's father's body, became grandfather to Steve and to many others. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel to change things. That's what will bring glory to God. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. For Jesus, his life was up for offer. Suffering and death and pain. But what he gained, the glory of the Father and the salvation of all of us who live at the ends of the world. And for the Waodani people, formerly called the Aka, which meant savage, but now they have a different name. <laughs> You'll have to look it up. They have a couple different names. You look that up and tell me what the names mean. But they don't, they don't call them savages anymore because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. 
What about you? What about us? How will we respond? How will we respond to suffering? How will we respond when we have opportunities to share this good news, this life-changing, life-giving news with other people? How will we respond when God asks us to go, to serve, to come and receive salvation? How, whatever it is that he's saying, go, do this. How will we respond? Yes, no matter what the cost? I hope so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this message. Thank you so much for the word that you have for us today. Oh. Thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because he loved you so much. And he loved the world so much. And he was willing to sacrifice himself that we could be saved. Thank you. Lord, now I pray that you will work in our hearts. I pray that we will be able to respond to you in the way you're calling us. That we may be people who seek to glorify you above all things. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the situation we find ourselves in. We love you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of response. And if it's okay, would you, um, would you mind getting us started there, Chelsea, and, and playing? And, um, where we'll sing a little bit. And I, I, I want to stand up here today while um, Chelsea plays and, and Cheryl and